Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It is true that the regulation that came out a couple of days ago is new, but in fact, what it is doing at the broader level regarding scrutiny of female athletes, regarding creating a threshold for their natural testosterone levels, um, all of that is old. And there is a multi-decade history here what have been called sex testing policies in elite sport, and these are simply the latest iteration. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak about testosterone and the female athlete. We talked to Katrina Carcasis, a senior research visiting fellow in the Global Health Justice Partnership at Yale University. Now, she co-wrote a bracing response to the International Association of Athletics Federation's new rules and regulations regarding allowed testosterone levels of female athletes. And she is going to break it down for us and why this is a manifest injustice with roots in deep racism, both towards the global south and in the history of track and field. Also, I've got choice words about cheerleaders who are taking on the National Football League. I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards. I've also got a Kaepernick watch. But first, before I go to Katrina Carcasis, we have some breaking news about this issue, and that's the fact that a member of the International Association of Athletics Federation, that's the IAAF, the governing body uh, for track and field, a member of their committee has quit in protest of their new rules and regulations regarding allowed testosterone levels of female athletes. The person who resigned from their quote-unquote disciplinary tribunal is named Steve Cornelius, and I want to read his letter. This just happened before we started recording the show. I want to read his letter before we get Katrina Carcasis on the line. This is what Steve Cornelius had to say. It is with an enormous amount of sadness that I address this letter to you. In 2017, when I was appointed to the inaugural IAAF Disciplinary Tribunal, I viewed that as a great honor and looked forward to make some contribution to ensure the integrity of the sport I love most. Sadly, I cannot in good conscience continue to associate myself with an organization which insists on ostracizing certain individuals, all of them female, for no reason other than being what they were born to be. The adoption of the new eligibility regulations for female classification is based on the same kind of ideology that has led to some of the worst injustices and atrocities in the history of our planet. How the IAF Council can in the 21st century, when we are meant to be more tolerant and aware of fundamental human rights, even contemplate these kinds of objectionable regulations is a sad reflection on the fact that the antiquated views of the old scandal hit IAAF still prevails, and that your promises of reform have been empty indeed. 
There is much dishonesty in the way in which the IAAF have continued to deal with a matter that should never have been addressed by it in the first place. I'm confident that history will judge you and the members of the IAF Council harshly for choosing to go down this route. On deep moral grounds, I cannot see myself being part of a system in which I may well be called upon to apply regulations which I deem to be fundamentally flawed and most likely unlawful in various jurisdictions around the globe. It would also be unethical for me to devote time and energy to expose the warped ideology behind the new regulations while serving on the disciplinary tribunal. It is for these reasons that I have decided to tender my resignation from the IAF disciplinary tribunal effective immediately. I can only do what my own conscience directs, but I do hope that there are others who are in some way involved with the IAF and who have the courage of conviction to take a strong stand against this injustice which the IAAF will perpetrate against certain female athletes. With my regards, Steve Cornelius. Bam! That was something right there from Steve Cornelius. And now, to talk about this, let's get on the line, Katrina Carcasis. So, Katrina, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> oh, no, on this issue, there's no one else I want to talk to. Um, so there are specific problems, as you pointed out in your article, to the new regulations, and there are general problems. So I, I was hoping we could start with the general. What is the problem at the most basic level of testing testosterone in female athletes and using that as a guideline for whether or not they should be able to compete? You know what I want to do? I want to go back even more general. So the general problem is scrutiny of women's bodies in order to in the female category. That to me is top level. Um, and that's not new. And so, you know, we get into a funny space here about semantics and language and it is true that the regulation that came out a couple of days ago is new, but in fact, what it is doing at the broader level regarding scrutiny of female athletes, regarding creating a threshold for their natural testosterone levels, um, all of that is old. And there is a multi-decade history here what have been called sex testing policies in elite sport. And these are simply the latest iteration. Um, what's changed is this. Um, in a recent op-ed, I talked about a science sideshow here. And that's exactly what's happening since 2011. These new regulations have had the veil of science pulled over them. And they've made an argument about natural testosterone levels and performance advantage and called that uh, supposed advantage unfair. And so it's really a turn away or an ostensible turn away from what had been called sex testing policies. And in practice, they're the same, same kind of regulation, the same process by which women are investigated, but trying to kind of give it a science framework around it. Both with the 2011 regulation and the one that just came out now, the regulation is coming out in advance of any transparent and debated review of the science. The regulation is released again. There have been scientific claims. I believe those scientific claims are specious and can quite easily be apart, but it's not enough for me to say that, right? We have to go into some kind of body that can help um, to sort of guide this conversation and make an assessment. And that's been the Court of Arbitration for Sport. So once again, policymaking is coming before the evidence. Mm. Wow. And I think you answered that really well, both at the specific and at the general. So um, right before you came on the air, I read a resignation letter from a member of the IAAF's uh, disciplinary body, uh, Steve Cornelius. W what is the significance of having someone actually resign, uh, saying in effect that the IAAF is on the wrong side of history at this moment, that it's discriminatory, and that it speaks to the worst kind of history that's taken place in international amateur athletics? I mean, the significance is huge. Insofar as I know, this is the only person since the 2011 regulations were put into place that has resigned in protest for the way that they discriminate against women and in this latest version by calling out intersex women. 
which are women with a combination of male typical and female typical sex traits, but who are women, um, born, raised, and identify as women. So it's, it's huge. And, you know, every time something like this happens, I track. Uh, the news stories. I read them. I look at Twitter. I try to look at international media. I read the opinion pieces. In the time that I've been looking, I've never seen such overwhelming um, uh, rejection of the regulation. And I think they miscalculated. I really do not think the IAAF probably anticipated this kind of backlash. And if I could conjecture, what I wonder is if they thought, you know, it's just intersex women. Uh, people won't care about them. It's a small number of women. And I think we can do this and really target our discrimination. I have only seen a few opinion pieces in support of this particular regulation. And I think here they are so obvious about their targeting of Castor Semenya, who is an internationally loved athlete in the pride of South Africa, that they're not just coming up against my athlete. They are coming up against 55 million people in South Africa, as well as many, many, many other supporters in other countries. So his resignation, I feel like, is the voice of that dissent and resistance around these um, discriminatory regulations. And I'm thrilled to bits that he did it and took a stand. I agree with him. He's, they're on the wrong side of history here. And I think at some point, down the road, somebody will probably make an apology for um, these kinds of regulations. It may not be soon, but I think even it will happen. Um, so I want to ask you about the case of Duty Chand. For, for people in our audience who aren't aware of who that is, what role do you think she played in shifting opinion, as you put it, against the IAAF on this um, in, and educating people about this issue of um, how we look at elevated testosterone in, in the female athlete. Mm-hmm. So I worked with Doty Chand, who's a national uh, record, well, maybe not record holder. Let me go back for a second. I worked with Doty Chand, who's a champion Indian sprinter from um, a small village um, in India who was barred from going to the Commonwealth Games in 2014 because it was said her testosterone levels were too high. She was in her teens when this happened. And to this day, um, I'm blown away by her strength and her commitment and her courage because she decided that there was nothing wrong with her and that she shouldn't have to change her body to continue competing in the category that she's always competed in and that she'd done nothing wrong. So she essentially took on the IAAF. And I mean, the other extraordinary thing, I like to tell people this because I think it sort of brings us into where Dutti was. She sat for five days at CAS, not really understanding English listening to a bunch of people primarily from the global North discuss her future and whether or not she could compete. And that to me speaks so much about the power involved in these deliberations and, and what kind of strength it took to sit in that room and, you know, trying to understand what was going on and to try to read the faces to understand if it was positive or not. So her case was huge. It brought, um, I think a kind of discussion around testosterone and sport that hadn't been available before because that was the, um, it hadn't happened in quite the same way because that policy was really focused on testosterone and questions of advantage. And a lot of interviews to media, both inside India and also there's a cover story about her in the New York Times magazine. So Dutty didn't know when we started, um, and nor should she, right, what the New York Times was. So, I mean, her words traveled far. She had never been connected, you know, to reporters in Global North Media. She was a star in her own country, but she became an international star. And she stuck through all the way to the end. And so our listeners may not know this, but Dutty has won her case. And this is a really important piece of the politics of this regulation, because I know you don't like to talk about politics too much, but <laughs> oh no, never right. When the case initially left off in 
2015 with the CAS decision, what CAS said was the regulation is suspended for two years pending sufficient evidence from the IAAF that women with naturally high testosterone have a performance advantage. And it wasn't just any advantage. And so people often misunderstand this. It was the kind of advantage that men typically have over women. And that got quantified to about 10 to 12 percent. They had gotten nowhere near that with their evidence that they presented. They were in the 1 to 3% range, and CAS said it's not good enough. So we hit the two-year mark. They got an extension because they were still publishing studies. And then they submitted some of that information this year. CAS said, um, essentially, wait a second. It's not clear right now if what the IAAF is doing is submitting evidence or if they're submitting a new regulation. It suspended the regulation for another six months and said to the IAAF, during that time, you need to come back and say, is this a new regulation or is this evidence for an old one? They issued a new regulation, and here's why it's important. If they had applied the regulation to all of the track and field events for women, of which I believe there are 21, they would have to go back and present that evidence to CAS because it would affect Dutty. That's not what they did. They restricted the events from 400 meter to one mile. Dutty doesn't run in those events. So because she doesn't run in them, it doesn't apply to her anymore. And they didn't end run around CAS, which is why it is now that we need another athlete to bring a case from one of those regulated events. And that is the part to me. It's a pretty, pretty gutless move. It is so underhanded that you know, um, since our reporter, wonderful reporter from the New York Times, who's the first person to catch me and ask me. And I said what I still believe, which is it's worse than I even thought. I, I could not believe that they would be so transparent in so many ways about what it is that they're doing. But it's helpful because the public sees it. People understand really quickly many things about the politics of this because of, of that, for example. Or let me give another example that I think is perhaps most revealing of the politics. So problematically, the IAAF is conducting their own research to support this regulation. So it's not impartial. And a study from two IAAF people came out in 2017 trying to link testosterone levels and various track events. And in that study, if we take it at face value, because it's been widely critiqued for its uh, statistical methods and other problems with how the study was conducted, but let's just leave all that aside and say, let's just, what did they say? Well, what they found was that there was a supposed performance advantage in five events. The highest advantage was in hammer thrown pole vault. The lowest, 800 meter. Not even analyzed was the 1500 meter. So let's go back for one second and line that up against the regulations. The regulations say we're going to do 400 meter to one mile. No hammer throw, no pole vault, even though in their own study that had the highest performance advantage. And they included 1,500 meter, even though they had no significant finding and didn't even analyze those data. On top of it, their own study found nine events where women with lower testosterone did significantly better. So there is absolutely no alignment between their own research and the kind of regulation they're making, which then you have to say, why are you including the 1500 meter? Why are you including the 800 meter, which is well within that one to 3% range that Cass was talking about saying it's not good enough to merit, uh, you know, and to support a regulation. And I think you have to look at Castor Semenya. And I think, you know, right, and it's very clear that I, since 2009, when she was um, scrutinized and then later removed, and sorry, in the Berlin World Championships, and then later told that she couldn't continue to compete for about 18 months, I think it was, that she's been on their mind since 2009. And the period when she was banned, the 2011 regulation, this new regulation, it's absolutely obvious that she's one of their primary targets in terms of getting her out of those races. Wow. That, 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 that's a powerful, almost cinematic story unto itself. 
It is, and I, it's infuriating, quite honestly. Um, it, it, the power differential between the people making the policies and the people whom they affect is extraordinary, and that is never taken into account. I would love for you if you could talk about the, the root of why they're going so hard on this issue, because, I mean, you could there's there is this history of sex testing, of gender testing of, of female athletes, um, both, and you could you could chalk up a lot of the past stuff to ignorance. Ignorance of science, um, uh, widespread sexism. I mean, there there's so many like reasons that we can understand where it was coming from. Um, racism, of course, to to women of color, women from the global south. Today, we know so much more about science, about testosterone, about how it does or does not help, about how we view women's bodies. What is the root of why they are so tenacious in going after this? Where is it coming from? Where is the pressure for them to act? and in this Mm -hmm. way coming from? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the issues is that there's unchecked power here. Um, CAS has, you know, this isn't sort of an an elected body, if you will, that's, um, these aren't open meetings where you and I can go and, you know, voice our dissent or say that we should be participating. These are closed meetings with hand-picked consultants and others. They're conducting their own studies, and it's primarily people from the global north. So you're correct when you say, you know, this has been going on for a really long time. We've had decades of sex testing. Um, What's different now is that it's primarily affecting women from the global south, and there are many reasons for this. But the continued interest in it, I think, is because of belong it's sort of an interest if you could do a Venn diagram a little bit one would be this abiding durable interest in scrutiny of women's bodies and the female category and who gets to participate the second I think is um naturalized and um sorry not naturalized the second piece of this is um ideas about who belongs on the podium right and should be uh, represented and celebrated in particular events in the natural order of things, if you will. And so what complicates this is that there's been a greater dominance in middle distance running events from women from the global south and, uh, you know, at times, especially from Eastern Africa. And so I think the concern around that and the concern around sex testing has come now to, to really boiled down very specifically to black and brown women from the global south being in part the um, people who are being most affected by this regulation. There are some reasons for this, which, um, you know, you can certainly find um, racialized and racist comments among policymakers. I put a couple of them in my writings and I released a really long paper, 60 pages, making this argument because it's such a hard argument to make. Um, And it requires pulling on different narratives. So let me give you one example. Um, When we put out the 20 regulations, 2011 regulations, the IAAF and the ISC said it was for the health of the athlete. Well, what you know is that, or what one might know, is that women with atypically high testosterone levels in the global north are typically intervened upon early in life so that they no longer have those high levels. So that's a very um, sort of pragmatic, practical reason why we don't find women with higher testosterone levels in the global north. Medical interventions have already been done on them. That's not necessarily the case in the global south. And so there was this kind of Western medical colonialism where we're going to bring our so-called good medical care to you and you know, in so doing, lower your testosterone levels, except that it was the kind of interventions that for two or so decades, people had been arguing who had been undergone them that they were harmful to them and that they shouldn't be done. Um, So there was a mismatch, I think, between what some of these policymakers were saying they were bringing to women from the global south and what women from the global south were saying they wanted. So to be really clear about this, you never simply lower testosterone levels because they're high. 
it's not like cholesterol or something else where we say, uh-oh, your testosterone's high as a woman, you need to lower it. Testosterone gets lowered because women come with complaints of problems. It could be infertility. It could be, um, you know, hair patterns and things that they don't want that, that they would prefer to, you know, to change. But it's not simply because it's high. And so what's being asked of women here is to undergo medically unnecessary interventions in order to keep competing. And that's what do that are that are dangerous well. unto themselves. These interventions, yeah, because so there's two ways primarily in the broad scope to lower testosterone pharmacologically and surgically. And I've written on this as well. And I just say that in case you know people sometimes they want evidence. <laughs> so you know I've looked at all of this, and there are short and long term health effects to both of those ways of lowering testosterone. It could be dehydration. Um, it can be mood changes fatigue, and in the case of surgery, uh, possible sterilization. So we're not talking benign interventions. And there's a lot of, not a lot, but there's mentioned a couple of times in this latest regulation that they're going to lower the testosterone, for example, through hormonal contraception. And I think that that's a signal in there to try to divert from the health effects because I think most people when they see hormonal contraception think, oh, it can't be that bad, you know, so it's fine to make them do this. But that's not where we start. Where we start is one step before, which is that women are being asked by a sports organization to undergo medically unnecessary interventions in order to compete. That's where we start. And hormonal contraceptives are not at all the only way that one lowers testosterone. So I think it's a distraction. I think it's meant to distract and to minimize the magnitude of uh, what's going on here. So these problems, as you describe them, they're so deep-rooted. And so I wanted to ask you, Mm -hmm. like, what is the solution here? I mean, what's the solution within the IAAF, the IAAF? I mean, is it about changing the leadership, getting more representation from the global south? Is it disbanding it all together? What, what are the solutions uh-huh. so we don't have to be going through this again in five years, ten years going forward? You know, it's an excellent point because I've only really been looking at this issue since 2011, and I feel like I'm on a treadmill around it. You know, one time I talked to you, it's a nightmare. Then I talked to you and we've won. Now I'm talking to you again and it's a nightmare again. Um, and this is a small part of this longer history. I have seen calls for Sebco to step down. So he's head of uh, IAAF. I've seen calls for the um, policymaking group to be disbanded. I've seen calls for a, a different governing body for track and field that would have more global South representation. It's a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, but I think all of those are, one, I think they would provide a solution to this, um, you know, in whole or in part. Um, but I also think they're necessary because they're about undoing and rectifying power structures that have been in place for so long, both power structures, uh, geopolitical, but also gender power structures, where it's primarily men making regulations about women's bodies. So that all needs to change in the longer term. Right now in this moment, and I would love to address this because people ask this a lot, and I think it's the wrong question, and I'm so glad it wasn't your question. You had an even better one. Um, But people do ask, well, what's the solution? And I, I, I say, well, what's the problem? And I don't mean that to be snarky, but here's the solution and what was the problem. Because if we're having a problem classifying people, we're not actually having that problem. Dutty and Castor Semenya were, are legally and have lived as women their entire lives. They are no different than me or any of their fellow competitors. So the idea that somehow we're having trouble classifying them, I actually think is a gross slap in the face to them around their lived experience and identity. If the question, and I don't believe it is, but if the question is about testosterone and advantage, as much as people want to shout about that, the evidence isn't there of the magnitude to exclude somebody from the category to which they belong. So if those aren't the problems, then I don't, I don't see a problem. Um, 
but you're right that people keep construing this as a problem. And so those people in power, um, it, you know, there needs to be um, a, a rethinking, right? And, and they're not amenable to this kind of thinking. They're not open to this kind of thinking. So um, I think a changing of the guard is long overdue and, and needs to happen. I mean, this, is, this has been going on for far too long. And of all of the times to do this, right in the middle of a global movement around Me Too, uh, I just, it's extraordinary that they would choose to do that. Mm. And, wow, you mentioned the Me Too. I wanted to ask you about how, what connections do you see between the, both the spirit and the organizing around Me Too and Time's Up and this this very particular struggle about elevated testosterone and the need to not see it as some sort of problem that needs a solution. Mm-hmm. The connection that I see to me too really is about women speaking up about very long-standing problems um, that have emanated from men's unchecked power. And here we had, you know, even um, as that movement was more nascent and sort of less global, that's exactly what Dutty was speaking to, that men shouldn't have a right, you know, these sports governing bodies shouldn't have a right to control what happens um, to her body. And a couple of years ago, there was this fantastic tweet from a woman in South Africa where she said, I know Castor's a woman because men are trying to control her body. Mm. So I think, right, that, I mean, it's just, I thought, why well, I might as well just pack it up. This person's like, you know, sort of said everything there is to say now. But I thought it was really insightful. So I think this pushback, this resistance, this idea of being fed up that um, for women athletes that are affected by this and being discriminated against, that, you know, that they don't want to take it anymore. And I hope another athlete brings a case. It's what we need right now. But there is also a huge chorus of women and men, men are very much speaking up about this, um, who, who are calling it really what it is, which is blatant discrimination. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I feel it is being absolutely connected. And maybe that will give some women, um, you know, a sense of feeling great global support in terms of bringing a case. Mm. Katrina Carcasis, wow, I really do appreciate the time you've given us. You've gone above and beyond. Your work is so important uh, to this struggle. And before you go, just something I ask every guest on the show, as you do this work and as you're grinding away, um, as you're writing these articles for The Guardian, as you're doing this advocacy, what kind of music are you listening to these days? What's inspiring you? What's keeping you going, either for a break from your work or what you play while you're doing the work? Oh, my gosh. This is such a fantastic question. I don't remember being answered. Well, obviously, Janelle Monet because Dirty Computer just came out. And I, don't, I loved her before, but she's at the top of my love list right now. I think she's so fantastic. I've gone back to Kendrick Lamar. Um, I also listened to... Um, a lot of jazz, so that's still happening, and actually a lot of gospel. So, you know, it depends. When I was writing the op-ed um, in The Guardian, I was talking to my uh, collaborator. I really wanted something emotional to write the end because I want to be, you know, once I've been arguing the science, I want to come back to the mood of people, right, and, and mm-hmm. who this is really about. And so for that... Um, you know, I will go to things that are incredibly heartfelt um, and about people. So, but yeah, that's a long, sort of long-winded answer. But in any event, yeah, Janelle Monae, Kendrick Lamar right now, um, a lot of podcasts. <laughs> that fires me up too, yeah. That's great, because then we can play uh, Janelle Monae as we go to break. Oh, so. brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Cardi B too, but yeah, oh, fantastic. Excellent. Katrina Carcasis, thanks so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports Podcast. Oh, Dave, always. I so appreciate the work you do. Thank you. We'll be back right after this, after a quick word from The Nation magazine. 
Okay, look, these are difficult times in which we live. I don't need to tell you that, but I do need to tell you this. There's a famous quote that if you could live without government and with newspapers or with government and without newspapers, you take with newspapers and no government time and again. In other words, we need journalism to hold the powerful to account, and no magazine has done that for a longer period of time with a deeper amount of politics and insight than The Nation magazine. They are the sponsor of this podcast, and you can subscribe to them at thenation.com slash subscribe. There's a lot of free stuff at thenation.com, but if you want to get to even deeper journalism and to what's in the print issue of the magazine, you do need to subscribe. The features this week are really good. You've got Janet Bell on African-American leaders of the civil rights movement, and you've got Victor Picard on Facebook, a terrific article. In the books and arts section, you've got Richard Evans on David Canadine's view from Whitehall, Adam Kirsch on Alfred Doblin's Berlin, Allison Hobbs on Wallace Thurman's The Blacker, The Berry, and Bijan Steven on David Byrne's American Utopia. This is amazing stuff. It's the sort of things you read and you feel smarter for having done it. So please take my advice and go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And remember, when you support the nation, you are also supporting the continual existence of this podcast. And now I've got some choice words about cheerleaders who are taking on the National Football League. Okay, look. Bailey Davis posted a picture of herself in a bathing suit on Instagram. This is ordinary enough, except she did so, heaven forfend, while working as a cheerleader for the New Orleans Saints. She was fired for breaking the rules of, quote, appearing nude, semi-nude, or in lingerie. Now, the bathing suit, as Deadspin noted, is less revealing than the cheerleading outfits themselves, just for the record. Kristen Ware, a cheerleader for the Miami Dolphins, spoke publicly about her decision to not have sex before marriage. Hardly something that would raise an eyebrow, let alone an eyelash. But doing so led her to being fired. These two women were punished for thinking that their bodies and minds were not merely NFL commodities. And now they have struck back, suing the NFL for wrongful termination. Their attorney, Sarah Blackwell, dropped a bombshell this week by announcing that her clients would be willing to drop their lawsuits and settlements for $1 for each plaintiff and a face-to-face good-faith meeting with NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell with no guarantees to discuss the creation of clear league-wide guidelines to follow going forward. This is a labor issue and one we should not take lightly. It's about the reality not the NFL-conjured fantasy of what it means to be a cheerleader and whether these workers in that grueling job have basic workplace rights. The NFL gave me no comment on the specific offer for a $1 settlement in a meeting, but they did provide a very generic statement where they said, quote, Our office will work with our clubs in sharing best practices and employment-related processes that will support club cheerleading squads within an appropriate and supportive workplace. That's all they gave us. I was, however, able to speak with Sarah Blackwell about her reasoning for going all in to secure a meeting with Goodell. And the aim is to get the NFL to live up to the content of that above statement, which is openly flouted by many teams. This is what Sarah Blackwell said. She said, The NFL keeps saying that the cheerleaders deserve the right to a fair and professional environments that are free of harassment and free of discrimination. And that's what we're saying as well. And we're not asking for anyone to admit fault. We're not asking for a chance to yell at anyone or accuse anyone. We don't need anyone to say, I did wrong. We just want to clear up the rules with the NFL, who say that they think that cheerleaders deserve an appropriate and supportive workplace, and say, so do we, and so let's have a conversation about it. End quote. Now, what makes this exceptional is that Bailey Davis and Kristen Ware are putting aside their own individual grievances for a greater good. They're willing to forego any settlement that they could receive and are aware that they will not be rehired. As Blackwell said to me, if we don't create change and if change isn't something that ends up happening, I think it'll be a really strong blow to Bailey and to Kristen and to myself because of how hard we're working and what we're risking for this. Again, this is a labor issue, pure and simple. I asked Blackwell about the gap between a cheerleader's life and the fantasy that a lot of people have about what a cheerleader's life is. And this is what she said. She said, 
I think that these teams have done a really great job of keeping the realities of what their life is like a secret. I'm learning the reality on a daily basis because of cheerleaders that are contacting me and from hearing stories from my clients. People have no idea that to be a professional cheerleader, you have to be bound by all of these awful, unlawful, and egregious rules. So a lot of cheerleaders accept whatever the rules are. It doesn't bother them. They don't care whether they're lawful or unlawful. I'm not saying every cheerleader has a problem, but I know that there are a lot of common issues within these teams that are unnecessary and unlawful that can be fixed. Let's see what happens. They're asking for a meeting. It seems like the least, quite literally, the least that the NFL could do to hear them out. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. This week, the Just Stand Up Award goes to the Olympic athletes who openly did not visit the White House out of resistance to Donald Trump and his agenda. That means Lindsey Vaughn, Gus Kenworthy, and Adam Rippon. I want to read what Gus Kenworthy tweeted. It was really good. He said, All U.S. Olympians and Paralympians are invited to visit the White House and meet the president after the Games. Today is this year's visit, and the USOC, that's the U.S. Olympic Committee spokesperson, said he's never seen so many athletes turn down their invites. The resistance is real. Adam Rippon put out this statement, which is very Kaepernick-esque. He said, I will not be going, I will not stand with people who discriminate against those that they perceive as different. In lieu of going to D.C., I have donated to a few of my favorite causes. He then listed activist and philanthropic organizations connecting his activism with philanthropy and encouraging people to also give to those organizations. So big shout out to Gus Kenworthy, big shout out to Adam Rippon, big shout out to Lindsey Vaughn. Big shout out to every Winter Olympian who did not go to the White House. And Gus Kenworthy said it best. The resistance is real. Why normalize this man? It's a question I think people have to answer. You don't have to be a photo op uh, for an abject bigot. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that you've signed away your right to resist just because you're an athlete. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award goes to fans of the Utah Jazz. People might have heard about the confrontation that they had with Russell Westbrook of the Oklahoma City Thunder after the Oklahoma City Thunder lost in Game 6 to the Jazz in Salt Lake City. This is what Russell Westbrook said after the game. Uh, I don't confront fans. Fans confront me. Um, Here in Utah, man, a lot of uh, disrespectful, uh, vulgar things are said to the players here with these fans. Man, it's truly disrespectful. Um, Talk about your families, uh, your kids. Um, and it's just a disrespect to the game, and I think it's something that needs to be brought up. Um, and I'm tired of just going out and playing and, and letting fans say what the hell they want to say. I'm not with that because if, if I was on the street, they wouldn't just come up to me and say anything crazy because I, 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 don't, I don't play that shit. So I just think it's disrespectful. When they get the chance to do whatever they want to do, it needs to be uh, put to a stop, especially here in Utah. The word is out to you, Utah. You are especially bad when it comes to criticizing these players. Put an end to it please and be conscious of the fact that your stands are all white in Utah that's just the way it is in Utah and so for you to come down on black athletes with this kind of invective I mean just trust me it's a really really bad look sit your ass down Hey everybody, this is Dave Zirin from the Edge of Sports Podcast. We are trying to add all kinds of bells and whistles to this pod. To do that, we need more folks who can sustain its existence. Go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. That is where you'll find us. If you become a patron, you'll see you get all kinds of little treats. But it's so important that people help us sustain and do the work. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And you can give five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or if you're feeling mighty generous, a hell of a lot more than that. And all of that helps us do the kind of work that we're trying to do on the regular. Patreon.com slash Edge of Sports Pod. And now back to the broadcast. And now it's time for the part of the show that we call Kaepernick Watch. This week. I mean, some comments that were very disturbing from uh, Jim Brown, Cleveland Browns Hall of Fame running back. This is what Jim Brown said. So, but do you understand in a couple more minutes left here with Jim Brown that that you, uh, late 60s, 70s, 
with Muhammad Ali and Bill Russell, okay, what you stood for in terms of social consciousness for players and, and peaceful protest, for you to say that there shouldn't be any kneeling, that folks kind of don't understand where that would be coming from, from you. Well, let me, you want me to explain? Please. Quickly. We, as superstars during the day, we had our secret meeting, we had our private meeting, we had our discussions. We came out of those discussions knowing exactly what our goals were. Okay? That's the way that we approached it. And so the difference is that today the situation is you have one guy taking a knee. The other players on his team are not taking a knee. When we were united, we came out with our point. We're all together. So the big difference is if you got a great work it out with your teammates and your organization and then take it public don't have every guy out there with an individual position that's that's never you're never going to solve it do you think kaepernick should have a job in the nfl jim uh, well that's <laughs> that's the way you put it i think that everybody should have a job that qualifies but i think that there is a thing called entrepreneurship and ownership and investing in in, in, in in your business. And I tell you what I really think. I think that every player should understand how privileged he is to be able to have a voice and notoriety and to make all that kind of money. So if you're a player and you have that kind of situation, you should organize your other players and then you all come out as a unit. Now, to directly say that this young man should be a quarterback, everyone should have an opportunity that has the ability. His ability is questioned to a certain degree. But if I was the general manager, I would not want to take him on because I would not know what he's going to do. And I would always want to know what my players are going to do, and they would come to me first, and we would discuss it. My problem with him is that he has a right to express himself but he should not put himself out there as a one. That doesn't work. There's so many problems with this. First and foremost, that Jim Brown is basically selling out Colin Kaepernick on the NFL's network is disturbing enough as it is. Um, second of all, that Jim Brown is using his own history and the struggle, his own connection with Muhammad Ali as a way to justify cracking down on Colin Kaepernick. That's disgusting in and of itself. And it's also disgusting that he's rewriting the history, saying that Colin Kaepernick did it alone and didn't meet with people. That's that's absolutely not true. Colin Kaepernick met with activist athletes from the past, like John Carlos, Tommy Smith. He also reached out to Jim Brown, saying that Jim Brown didn't include in what he said. Uh, and in addition, of course, Colin Kaepernick was on conference calls, as we've reported on this podcast, with tons of players, both before, during, and in the aftermath of his protest. So it's the rewriting of history. Um, and it's using his own history as a way to bash Colin Kaepernick. Now, what's also particularly disturbing about this is that Jim Brown has a 30, 40-year record of bashing the next generation of athletes who came after him for not being political enough. And now here's an athlete actually being political, and he's bashing them too. Um, it's the worst kind of hypocrisy. It's very disturbing. Um, If people are interested in Jim Brown and his history, I have a book coming out called Last Man Standing about Jim Brown and his political life, and it tries to go through the positive and the negative of his political existence, and so folks should check that out. Well, that's all we have for this week's show. Uh, my name's Dave Zirin. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigaboo. Thank you so much to the very busy Katrina Carcasis for making the time to speak with us on the show. And to everybody out there listening, please, if you like the show, go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, go to your podcast app of choice, uh, leave a rating, write a comment. All of that makes a big difference to the future of the show. Thank you to all of our patrons. You can go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod if you want to help uh, support this podcast. To everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success.